0: So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event and welcome also to those of you watching live online via the LSE live. My name is David Webb. I'm a pro director here at the school. I'm also a professor of finance in the academic faculty. So I'm pleased to be here to welcome Dr. Jim Yong Kim to the LSE today. Dr. Kim is the 12th president of the World Bank Group. Soon after he assumed his position in July 2012, the organization established two goals to guide its work to end extreme poverty by 2030 and to boost shared prosperity, focusing on the bottom 40% of the population in developing countries. In September 2016, the World Bank Group unanimously reappointed Dr. Kim to a second five-year term as president. During his first term, the World Bank Group supported the development priorities of countries at levels never seen outside of a financial crisis and with their partners achieved two successive record replenishments of the World Bank Group's Fund for the Poorest. The institution also launched several innovative financial instruments, including facilities to address infrastructure needs, prevent pandemics, and help the millions of people forcibly displaced from their homes by climate shocks, conflict, and violence. Dr. Kim's career has revolved around health, education, and delivering service to the poor. Before joining the World Bank Group, Dr. Kim, a physician and anthropologist, served as the president of Dartmouth College and held professorships at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. From 2003 to 2005, as director of the World Health Organization's HIV-AIDS department he led a three-to-five initiative, the first ever global goal for AIDS treatment, which greatly expanded access to anti, uh, antiretroviral viral medication in developing countries. In 1987, Dr. Kim co-founded Partners in Health, a non-profit medical organization that now works in poor communities on four continents, Dr. Kim has received a MacArthur Genius Fellowship and was recognised as one of America's 25 best leaders by New News and World Report, and was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. Tonight, on the eve of the World Bank Group International Monetary Fund Spring Meetings, Dr Kim's lecture entitled Rethinking Development Finance will outline how we must fundamentally shift development finance to meet the aspirations of the world's 7 billion people and become the first generation in history to to end extreme poverty poverty after his lecture and before taking questions from you the audience Dr Kim will be in conversation with award-winning broadcast journalist Zainab Badawi, who I'm delighted uh, to also welcome to the LSE this evening. Zainab is currently the presenter of Global Questions and Hard Talk for the BBC, as well as Chair of the Royal African Society, a Trustee of BBC Media Action, a Vice President of the United Nations Association UK, and board member of the African Union Foundation. She's also a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council for Africa. Let me just give you some bits of information. For those uh, 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 of you who um, use Twitter uh, in the audience, apparently there are quite a lot. Uh, I think it's, it's good to know that you're in tune with the President of the United States. The 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 the, uh, the hashtag for debate for today's event is #hash. It's normally on the slide. Uh, #hash uh, LSE World Bank. So I'd ask you to please make sure that your phones are on silent. Just sort out of courtesy to the speaker. And this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, assuming that we have no technical failings. Uh, so before i welcome uh, dr kim to the stage we're just going to show a very short video about the work of the world bank so here we go
1: we don't just see poverty we see possibility behind healthy newborn and poor Promoting safer childbirth. Behind a successful crop in Kenya. Pioneering research on sustainable farming. For every worker in Bangkok, mass transit that reduces pollution. The World Bank Group. Working in governments, the private sector, and civil society. created to rebuild, all the world. building knowledge, relationships, and resources to create opportunity and a better life for all. With the World Bank by your side, it is possible. We can be prosperous if we
2: can all
1: work
3: together. Our land, our ocean, and we as one, one people. We all want to modernize, but still keep our... It's possible to give everyone
1: the tools to prosper. It's possible to power home and empower a community. It's possible to plan and prepare so crisis doesn't become calamity. We don't have the space in the
3: school, so we open the classes during the afternoon to have their refugees. few It is possible to give every child a good start in life.
2: We need to take care of them, because in the future they're the one running.
0: So, you've already partly done that, but now please join me in welcoming <laughs> Dr. Kim on stage to deliver his lecture. <laughs> I'll leave you Thank to give the title. Thank, Thank you very much. much.
3: Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. It's a, it's a thrill to be here. You know, uh, I've, uh, I've read about and heard about and had so many friends who, uh, who went to school here, so it's really thrilling to be here. Now let me, a little bit of a warning ahead of time. So this is a really full speech. I take on a little bit of economics, a little bit of development, a lot of finance, private sector, public sector, uh, and just hang with me through the speech, and then we'll have plenty of time uh, to discuss issues. But uh, uh, it's great. This is a this is going to be a very, um, uh, a, a very lecture-style uh, uh, speech where we try to get at core issues. But let me just start by saying what we're talking about today is a fundamental change in the way we do development finance. And so uh, there will uh, uh, there'll likely be criticisms uh, of this from many corners. So uh, stick with it, and, uh, and we'll get to a discussion of it. So first, I want to thank uh, Dame Shirley Pierce. Uh, uh, Professor, Director uh, David Webb, uh, faculty, students, and guests. Thank you, thank you very much uh, for hosting me uh, at, uh, th- this evening at the, at the great uh, London School of Economics. It's really a great honor to be here with you, and also uh, we're here with uh, our friends from the UK government, including uh, from the Department uh, for International uh, Development, I think Mark Lowcock is here, there's a Mar- Mark right there. We work with them every single day, and also from Her Majesty's Treasury. Let me start by, first of all, uh, really thanking and commending the UK government for its continued leadership and its commitment to the uh, 0.7% of gross national income. Now, I I want you to know that uh, in the world of development, this is a source of just enormous inspiration and hope for us. And part of the speech tonight is really uh, trying to put on the table, if if the people of the UK are this generous, What do we need to do to make the best possible use of those resources? And and I I, I hope that uh, uh, the message tonight makes some sense. To the students in the room, and I know this is vacation week, so to see a number of students, or at least young-looking people, uh, (laughs) it's it's fantastic. And uh, you must take uh, great pride because there are great business leaders, politicians, economists, many of them working at the World Bank. Uh, who earned their degrees here. My friend, uh, the great President Juan Manuel Santos, the uh, Nobel Prize winner, I had the great privilege of being with him in Colombia when he signed uh, the agreement the first time. Uh, Tom uh, Piketty, of course, uh, who wrote that great book that everyone buys but very few people read. Uh, and, uh, uh, George Soros, and of course, the great Mick Jagger. How cool is that? Mick Jagger, I don't think, got his degree from here, but uh, just the fact that he was here. Uh, <laughs> One of, the, one of the great academic institutions, and really the place for me uh, to give this speech about the forces in the world that are making us fundamentally rethink our approach to development uh, at the World Bank Group. And Last fall, uh, before the uh, uh, IMF World Bank uh, Group meetings, I talked about our two goals. Uh, first, to end extreme poverty, and the other to boost shared prosperity. But specifically, I talked about three different paths that we were going to use to get to those two goals. The first path, of course, and it's the traditional one that we've been engaged in uh, since the beginning, is to accelerate inclusive and sustainable economic growth. Now, we're doing this by laying the foundations for better, more effective public services. Uh, We're improving governance and tackling corruption. Especially though, we're we're trying to accelerate infrastructure investment by lowering the real and perceived risks for private investment. Uh, We're making trade. Work for everyone. We just launched a publication yesterday in, in Berlin with uh, 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 with the IMF and the World Trade Organization on trade, and we're trying to create new markets to bring the benefits of private sector uh, uh, investment and private sector know-how to developing countries. That's the first path. The second path is to invest more and more effectively in human beings. You know, we believe that the premium on human capital will get higher and higher every year. The demands for digital competency are accelerating, and indicators are suggesting that automation will replace many of the less complex and low-skilled jobs in developing countries. The remaining jobs, the new jobs, will demand new and more sophisticated skills. So investing in human development, we, we believe, has to start early by ensuring, for example, that pregnant women have access to prenatal care. Uh, including uh, the the right nutrition, preventing malnutrition in children so they can develop properly, uh, ensuring access to quality health care for all, providing education that prepares students for the jobs of the future, and building social safety nets everywhere. I mean, we really want to build social safety nets everywhere that really protect the poor. That's the second path. The third path is uh, we have to foster greater resilience to the multiple overlapping global shocks and threats that we're living in. Uh, pandemics, climate change, refugees, and now famine. You know, right now, uh, in parts of East Africa and Yemen, uh, the, uh, we're seeing what the United Nations is calling the worst famine in 70 years. It's really important, in our view, to help countries prepare for these crises. Uh, the World Bank Group now is the largest funder of, cro- of climate-related investments. Uh, we're pioneering uh, a first-of-its-kind pandemic emergency insurance facility, and we can talk about all these things during the question and answer. We're working with, uh, with countries and with partners uh, and, and, and helping to end famine. We, we were the, very early out the door. We put $1.6 billion on the table to try to end famine. But more importantly, we're looking at ways to use our financial tools to prevent famines in the future. We're also continuing our work on uh, global displacement, the problem of refugees, And uh, we've allocated $2 billion in IDA, which is our fund for the poorest countries, the next IDA, Ida uh, IDA-18, to to specifically support countries that are are, uh, hosting refugees. And you know that developing countries host by far the largest uh, proportion of refugees. Uh, For the first time, we're also providing below-market interest rate financing to any middle-income country uh, that's hosting refugees through a new facility that we launched with, uh, actually with President Obama uh, last fall, uh, called the Global Concessional Financing Facility. And we're using that facility now to support Jordan and Lebanon. These are two really upper-middle-income countries that normally wouldn't get, um, you know, longer-tenure, longer-maturity, lower-interest-rate loans, but because they're doing the world a service, we're providing these loans to them. Uh, So in the midst of all these crises and uh, and efforts uh, by our group to respond, uh, we're also seeing in many uh, countries in the world uh, a rejection of globalization. And there's debate now about the benefits of the global market capitalist system. Now, we know it's true. Uh, Many people feel that they haven't experienced the benefits of globalization. Recent studies of the U.S. and European job markets document the hollowing out, as you know, of the segments uh, of the workforce. An analysis that we just uh, uh, released with the IMF, as I was talking about, and WTO, uh, actually does, though, show that trade has greatly benefited the poor, but not everyone. Uh, In many places, middle-class incomes have stagnated and jobs have disappeared. There's a discussion, of course, happening here in the UK right now about this very question. You know, I grew up in Iowa, in the middle of uh, of the United States, in a very rural area. And I I can tell you that my friends who thought that I was crazy for going on to college, they said, you've finished school, why on earth would you pay to go to school longer? They were getting jobs in steel mills, they were getting jobs in other factories, were buying homes and buying cars. And uh, they now, uh, uh, and I I know this because uh, we're all Facebook friends now, uh, (laughs) they're very unhappy. They're very unhappy with the current situation, which which has uh, led to uh, uh, poorer prospects for them and even poorer prospects for some of their children. Now, we know ensuring that the fruits of globalization are enjoyed by all is an urgent task for every country in the world, uh, whether it's rich or poor. But globalization is having other effects, especially on people's aspirations. Uh, and this is forcing us at the World Bank Group to rethink our approach to development. Now, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, signed on to by 193 countries that were passed in 2015, is wildly aspirational. Uh, there, it's a, it contains a vision of a world without poverty, without hunger, safe from threats like environmental and social disasters. And everywhere I go in the world, I see that ambition with my own eyes. You know, as president of the World Bank, uh, I've traveled to six continents, met with uh, people from just about every one of our 189 member countries. And just about every country I visit, I see people on their cell phones and computers. The Internet and social media uh, now allow them to know exactly how everyone else lives. Uh, To some extent, that's been possible for a long time with newspapers and television but this is different. Uh, Now, uh, someone in Butare, Rwanda, which I just visited a few weeks ago, can Facebook message their cousin in Kigali and become immersed in detail about life 80 miles away. And then both of them can talk every day with a friend studying in Paris and learn about life 4,000 miles away. Depending on connectivity, and in, in Rwanda, it happens to be excellent, outstanding, broadband throughout the entire country. They can send emails, pictures, videos, snaps, tweets, and text back and forth at lightning speed. So knowing exactly how everyone else lives in their own countries and abroad is leading, I would argue, uh, to a convergence, a global convergence of aspirations. Let me explain what I mean. So as I travel, uh, it seemed to me that everyone was aspiring for what they could see, not just in, in front of them, not just around them, but even for what they're connected to digitally. And I wanted to know if my impressions were supported by data. So, one of the great, great luxuries of being at the World Bank is that just about, on just about any question in life, there's someone at the World Bank who knows something about it, or who knows someone who knows everything about it, right? So, two of our best economists, Bill Maloney and Laura Chioda, um, came and I asked them, is there a convergence of aspirations and how would we know that? Uh, So, using data, From the World Value Survey in the Gallup World Poll, they looked at how people across uh, the economic spectrum felt about their financial situation 15 years ago and today. They looked at trends in internet connectivity. um, They looked at whether people expressed interest in living abroad as a proxy for whether their aspirations are informed by how people live in other countries. The research is preliminary, uh, but uh, here's uh, here's what they found. Your relative happiness depends on where you are in the income distribution. So the interesting thing is that over 15 years, those in the top uh, 10 percentile or 20 percentile have all converged and are all pretty happy. But in the lower percentiles, people are still pretty unhappy, and it varies depending on where you live. Um, and so uh, the key is, what is your reference income? In other words, which, what income do you compare your own income to? Looking at the data on satisfaction with standard of living, we found that if your reference income, that, to, that, that income to which you compare your own, if that goes up 10%, then you're av- your income on average, across all the percentiles, across you know, the entire population, your own income has to go up on average at least 5% for you to maintain the same level of satisfaction. Uh, the trade-off, though, is that uh, for poorer people, if you're, poor, if you're in the lower percentiles, your income has to rise even faster as the reference income for your country, your community, goes up. We also found that Internet access, as as Internet access becomes more widespread, people are increasingly looking outward for their reference income. And this correlation between Internet access and looking outward for your reference income has grown over time. So, keeping up with the Joneses used to be about keeping up with your neighbors. Uh, but it's not only about the Joneses living around you now. Because of connectivity, the Joneses could be living anywhere in the world. Now, we know that uh, uh, connectivity in the developing world has expanded. And if you – I was just at Oxford at the Skoll Foundation meetings, and Jeff Skoll, who who knows this stuff, was saying that, you know, with, uh, with low-orbiting satellites and, uh, and fiber optics, everyone is going to have broadband very soon, sooner than we all imagine. Uh, so – According to the Gallup poll, internet data access for the poorest 20% nearly doubled from 11% in 2009 to 21% today. And again, what we're hearing is that doubling is going to speed up. Why does this matter? Well, in Africa, um, you know, where 1.2 billion people live, in 2015, there were 226 million smartphone users. By 2020, that's going to triple to three quarters of a billion people with access. Uh, It's important uh, to remember in the midst of of all this that as people are connected to the Internet, we think aspirations will rise even more. Um, uh, These aspirations aren't just for the things that other people have. They're for opportunity. People want opportunity for themselves and for their children. So a poor child, for example, in in Colombia uh, can text message with her friend in a rural area of Colombia can text message with her friend in Bogota, and hear all about her school, uh, what she's learning, and the jobs she could have when she graduates. That child in the rural area in Colombia is going to want the same opportunities. We know that that's happening. So we we, we found, though, that if people in general are satisfied with the quality of education, with early childhood programs, uh, with security and health care, they're going to have a much higher level overall of satisfaction and with their standard of living. Now, in, term, in this question of aspirations, you know, I was born in South Korea in 1959. And in 1959, I mean, it's like, wow, 59. I mean, the young people in the audience must think, when was that? Right? <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you exactly what. 1959 was a time when Korea was poorer uh, than, than Somalia. It was poorer than Ghana. And it was about the same GDP per capita as Kenya. And Korea was so poor in that year that I was born that it did not qualify for World Bank loans. Uh, the World Bank said that uh, Korea is so poor uh, that, uh, that uh, it will not be able to pay back its loans, so it didn't qualify uh, for loans until much later, 1963. Right? Now, more on that in just a bit. Because of what happened to Korea and because of the aspirations that I was able uh, to pursue, I think that rising aspirations is something we all should celebrate. Uh, but I'm worried that our ability in the development community to meet those aspirations is not going to measure up, and that's why I'm here talking today. Aspirations, when linked to opportunity, can breed dynamism and inclusive, sustainable economic growth. That's what we saw in Korea. But I worry, and studies seem to show this, that if there's no opportunity to achieve one's rising aspirations, frustration can lead to fragility, conflict, violence, extremism, and eventually, migration. Now, we're already seeing some very worrying trends in the world. Two billion people now live in countries affected by fragility, conflict, and violence. After a period of decline since the end of the Cold War, violent conflicts have increased rapidly since 2010. Terrorism incidents have increased by 120% since 2012. By 2030, 50% of the global poor will live in areas affected by fragility and conflict. We cannot meet our two goals, ending extreme poverty, boosting shared prosperity, unless we tackle the challenge of fragility and conflict. Uh, We believe at the World Bank that we have a moral responsibility to do more to help people lift themselves out of both poverty uh, and uh, fragility and to help stabilize the countries they live in and to give them hope for the future. That's why we've doubled the allocation in IDA-18, two uh, fragile and conflict-affected states, to $14 billion. We need to continue. We need to find new and innovative ways to reach the poor and make the world more secure and stable through development finance. Now, uh, I really believe that, that uh, the approach that I'm talking about today, I'll talk about today in detail, is our only chance to a- achieve that goal. So if we don't move quickly, to help countries meet the aspirations of their people, uh, we are worried that uh, those aspirations are going to turn into anger, resentment, and ultimately uh, uh, potentially even extremism and the movement of people. Morally and ethically it's the right thing to do, uh, but because of rising aspirations, the task is much more urgent than we ever thought. So how do we do this? How do we move with unprecedented speed and scale uh, and, and meet these aspirations? In 2015, before the world adopted the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, we met in Addis Ababa to discuss how we would finance these these, uh, incredibly uh, uh, aspirational goals. We knew that to meet what are now called the Global Goals, uh, we had to move the discussion from billions of dollars in official development assistance to trillions of dollars in investments of all kinds, public, private, national, global, Uh, and these investments had to be in terms of both uh, uh, capital, money, and capacity in these countries. Billions to trillions was the shorthand we used to describe the scale of finance we needed. But to get to the trillions, we needed to fundamentally change the way we do our work. And to be honest, uh, we haven't changed the way we work, uh, not nearly enough, uh, and we're not there yet. So to succeed with the immense tasks ahead of us, we have to change our approach to all of development, and especially to development finance. In our conversations with investors uh, uh, from the private sector, nearly every one of them would say that they would consider investing in emerging markets uh, if it were less risky. Given the low returns that so many owners of capital are receiving from investments, there should be potential for many win-win scenarios where capital earns a higher return and developing countries receive the finance and the expertise that they need uh, to grow. So I uh, am arguing today that our top priority in development finance should be to systematically de-risk both projects and countries to enable uh, the private sector to finance, uh, 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 to bring the private sector finance and at the same time, the reason that organizations like ours, the reason organizations like uh, like Diffit are so important, is because we have to be the ones that ensure that while we encourage private sector finance, we also have to make sure that the investments benefit poor countries and poor people. Uh, we have to do this, of course, by crowding in the private sector whenever possible. And we need to combine the private sector capital with our knowledge. And it's, it's technical expertise, knowledge about the countries, uh, and the economies, and, and, and we need to bring capital and knowledge together so that, as I said, it really works for the poor. Um, we need to become honest brokers who literally sit between the global market capitalist system and the interests of uh, poor people, ensuring that both sides win. Uh, I'm going to give you some examples of how, just how we did that. Um, now. The difficult part is that we believe that all development finance institutions should be working through a set of principles. And we're working now uh, with other development banks, you know, with uh, donor countries, uh, with everybody in development finance to come up with these principles that lead to maximizing resources uh, and benefits for the poor. That's the point. The point is not an ideological commitment to the public or the private sector. It's a non-ideological commitment to maximizing benefits for the poor. We're not there yet, but this is how we think it should happen. First, for every project we support, we have to start with a question. Can the private sector finance this on commercial terms? I'll tell you a story. In 2006, the government of Jordan was working with the World Bank Group to finance improvements to the, and it's really beautiful if you've ever been there, the Queen Alia uh, Airport in, in Amman. Uh, this could have been financed solely by uh, public money. In other words, they could have taken a loan from us or from another bank and, and, and built it. Uh, and and renovated it. But the government was interested in doing uh, a public-private partnership where they'd get part of the money in loans and part from the private sector. But the World Bank employee, the public sector employee in charge of the project, John Speakman, more on him later, reached out to his counterpart at IFC, uh, the private sector arm of the World Bank Group, and he knew that this uh, person in IFC had built uh, a similar project in Saudi Arabia, knew the market, knew how to do this. Together, they worked with the Jordanian government to lay the groundwork for private investment. IFC, our private sector arm, put down $270 million of its own capital, and then the rest of the billion-plus came in from commercial financers, from the private sector. The government contracted the airport's uh, operations to a French company, who pays now Jordan an annual fee. This is a real partnership. Jordan receives 54% of the net revenue and they're making money every year. Over the last nine years, with no direct investment to improve the airport, either directly from their own cash or from a loan, Jordan received more than $1 billion in revenue, and they have no project loans to pay back. We believe that we have to look everywhere for more opportunities like the Queen Alia Airport. That will mean that when something is commercially viable, we have to agree across the entire international development system, multilaterals and bilaterals, that we will help the government negotiate a private sector deal that provides value for money, ensures good governance, adheres to environmental and social standards. Now, uh, that's the idea. We would love to be able to do this in every country. Jordan doesn't take on any more debt. The, The airport gets built. It runs beautifully, and they receive revenue that they can then spend on other things. But I can tell you, getting to agreement that this is the first principle has not been easy. Second, uh, we have to encourage upstream reforms. We saw this work in Turkey in the energy sector. Over a decade with other partners, we supported the creation of power and gas markets with a focus on regulations and pricing structure. So we used public finance for public good investments like transmission expansion and advised on changes in the regulatory structure to make the energy uh, uh, more efficient. As the market opened up, IFC-led investments in renewable energy. And MIGA, it's, uh, our, it's one of our agencies, is called the Multi, MIGA, M-I-G-A, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, uh, which specializes in political risk insurance, by the way, which we invented at the World Bank Group, and credit enhancement provided coverage. So with just $5 billion of our own investment, the public, in, uh, public investment and, po- and policy loans, Turkey over the years has been able to attract more than $55 billion, $5 billion, billion in private power and gas investments. So, uh, to repeat, our goal isn't just to de-risk projects. The goal is to de-risk entire countries. And to achieve this with all our projects, especially those that aren't commercially viable to begin with, uh, we'll, uh, 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 because of of various market failures and risks, we're going to work with governments uh, on regulatory and policy reforms upstream to make the projects commercially viable at some point in time. Turkey, it took time. It took years to get them ready for this, but when it happened, the private sector investments poured in. Third, the third way to do this, uh, we have to use uh, public or concessional finance in innovative ways to mitigate risk. Uh, And blended finance, uh, taking part grant, part loan, blending them together and providing a larger amount of money with a long maturity. You pay it back over many more years and very low interest rates. We, we, we do this all the time. But um, there's something that we're working now. It's pretty nerdy, but I want you to I want you to pay attention. We call it the Managed Co-Lending Portfolio Program, MCPP, right? Now, Managed Co-Lending Portfolio Program, I just get so excited about this, right? I mean, uh, my life is pretty dull to get excited about MCPP, but it's really exciting, right? Let me explain it to you, right? So what this does, is we've created a platform that will allow institutional investors from wealthy countries to invest in projects in the developing world and get a good return on their investment. And these are people that normally wouldn't invest in developing countries. So IFC, our private sector group, and Swedish SIDA, the Swedish International Development Association, provided a first-loss guarantee of 10%. Now, for those of you who've studied finance, it's creating a debt instrument Where since we're taking the first ten percent, if there is loss in the project, we will swallow the first ten percent. So taking the first ten percent creates a ninety percent, what we call senior tranche of uh, of 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 debt that is uh, graded investment grade. So we figured out how to do this so that that uh, those who need investment grade triple B debt uh, instruments can actually uh, invest, and and it was relatively easy. One hundred and ten million from us and a $60 million guarantee from Swedish CETA led to a $1 billion uh, infrastructure fund so that uh, insurance companies who have much lower risk tolerance can invest in emerging markets. Allianz, one of our partners, already invested $500 million. So uh, 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 $60 million guarantee from Swedish CETA, $110 million from us, first loss, 90, 900, excuse me, 900 million from uh, private sector investors like insurance companies. So Swedish Seed 60 million has leveraged now a 1 billion dollar instrument. This is the kind of thing that we have to do to meet the demands and the aspirations of the people. So, for example, one of the things we'd like to do is to find a way for a pension fund in the UK to, to, to invest in, for example, building roads in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, get a reasonable return on that investment and do a lot of good in the process. But in order to do that, we've got to play this intervening honest broker role. Uh, In a similar way, MIGA has been working with DFID, Sweden and Canada over the past few years, and just $90 million from those three uh, donors uh, is now allocated to catalyze $800 million, uh, 90 to 800 uh, in private sector investments, in fragile and conflict-affected countries, places where it's very difficult to get the private sector to go. So our new tools, we've got uh, lots of new ones, and one of them is a $2.5 billion uh, uh, private sector window in IDA uh, that comes from a record uh, replenishment. And again, the UK um, has been at the very top of of, uh, donors to to, to this fund. And uh, among other things, it includes... Now, again, here's here's some nerdy stuff, but it's so important, right? risk mitigation facility that provides project-based guarantees, right? That, 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 that means that it specifically looks at reducing the risk for the private sector to invest. A local currency facility to mitigate currency risk. Now, this is, this is really, really hard. To go to a, ve- a poor developing country, investors often say, but what if the value of the currency drops? How are they going to pay us? And so uh, traditionally the groups that provided um, uh, uh, the uh, exchange rate risk guarantees were central banks in those countries, uh, often the institutions that could least afford to provide those kind of guarantees. We're actually doing it through the generosity of, for example, the UK people. Now, there are sectors that can only be funded with public financing where the objectives can't be met uh, by the cost recovery requirements when private sector uh, invests, but our hope Uh, is that we're going to be successful at both creating markets and following the principles that I outlined, these three principles. Uh, And what that will do is that then countries can use scarce public resources, the the resources they otherwise would have used uh, to invest in these infrastructure projects, for example. They can invest more in people. They can help to build resilience to these shocks. And they can respond uh, to, to the crises as they come up. So we need to keep searching... Uh, for pathways to bring the private sector into these areas. Uh, But only if it's in the interest of everyone, especially those who are excluded uh, from the benefits of development. So let's just take one example where we can mix public and private in the most interesting ways if we're strategic enough. Um, uh, Gender equality. So we've found in many countries in the world uh, that um, women get a huge boost when we open up access to finance for women entrepreneurs and let them begin their own businesses. But if we just did that, it wouldn't be enough. Linking access to finance with uh, uh, changes in policy so that women can make the most out of this capital is also really critical. You need to do both. Now, um, the, the, the really great thing for us is that these principles aren't just relevant and stable countries. We've actually applied them uh, in conflict areas. And so, for example, in Iraq, years of war and neglect led to daily blackouts, crippling the economy. Uh, So even in Iraq, we asked the question, can the private sector fund power generation and distribution in these very difficult circumstances? The answer was yes to power production, but not yet to power distribution. So in Iraq, uh, we invested $250 million dollars of IFC, private sector money, and helped the government change policies, and then we mobilized another $125 million in private capital for power production. So this, this, this relatively small investment for us expanded the capacity of an existing power plant by 50%, bringing power to 3 million people, and it helped um, uh, complete a new power plant that will supply about half of Baghdad's energy. Getting the private sector engaged in creating uh, jobs and growing economies may be the best possible way uh, to prevent conflicts in the future. It's not easy, but but you've got to ask the question and you can't make assumptions. Now, let me be clear, right? This is not the bad old days of privatization uh, that, uh, that, that the bank engaged in years ago. Uh, I, I, and, I, and, and, and I really, I really uh, want to emphasize this point because 20, 20 some years ago, 23 years ago, I was part of a group called 50 Years is Enough and we protested. I called for the closing of the World Bank in 1994 uh, <laughs> on, its, uh, on its 50th anniversary and part of it was because of very bad privatization deals. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, We're not it, talking about just reviving this old approach where the answer to poorly run public uh, services or unprofitable state-owned enterprises was an oversimplified over-simpli- attempt at privatization. And, and I, I want to give you some examples. In, 19, in the 1990s, um, in one of our loans, we prescribed, and that's what they called them, prescriptions, we prescribed the privatization of uh, Senegal's uh, power company, a company called Senelec. A few years later, the privatization failed and the government had to buy the utility back. So we learned from that. Other similar privatization efforts were ill-conceived. They didn't have a clear understanding of the roles and obligations of the state versus private managers. They didn't include fundamental reforms of the overall sectors. We're much more focused today on whether the regulatory context, for example, provides incentives for efficient management whether commercial principles are being applied consistently, and whether subsidies for services, subsidies that you provide for services, for example, you know, for energy, are transparent and focused on the poor. Uh, uh, Now, uh, we're much better at this, and so we have much more confidence that we can go forward and uh, the the entry of the private sector can be done uh, more strategically. So this is a different approach. What emerged from our discussions in Addis Ababa in 2015 was the consensus that private capital was essential for development. But the development had to be country-led, as always. I mean, this is something that's really new in the last 20 years. Everything has to be country-led and always focused on benefiting the poor. In every case, we have to ask ourselves, what are the priorities of the government? What's in the best interest of poor countries and poor people? Can we find win-win solutions? And do these event investments align at the World Bank Group with our, or are our values, access, inclusion, And equality. Now, it's easy to talk about uh, uh, this approach, but it's going to be very difficult uh, to change fundamentally the global development architecture if we want to move in this direction. Uh, the development world is not there yet, and I'm going to be honest with you, the World Bank is not there yet either, Uh, but this is something we have to do. And at the World Bank Group, we know that we have to start with ourselves. So here's what we're doing in our organization. We have to change the incentive structure. Remember John Speakman, Jordan? He gave up a project to the private sector, right? So when John Speakman did that, um, uh, you know, say, oh, look, this is commercially viable. I, I need to get IFC involved. When he did it, he was working completely against his own interest. The incentives were structured so that the best thing for him to do was to quickly get the project to the board and get it, uh, 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 and get it approved and get the loan out the door. Now, uh, uh, if a World Bank employee spends years doing project preparation, getting these great projects together, and they do such a great job that the project becomes commercially viable, we should celebrate that. That should be the greatest achievement uh, because you've, pr- you've, you've helped a country prevent, uh, avoid another loan. They brought the private sector in. But we do not celebrate that right now. So we're working to change incentives inside the World Bank Group. Uh, we're tracking and defining uh, mobilization, direct mobilization of commercial capital so we can reward every effort to bring in private capital. We're going to put in place a tracking system so that it even captures indirect forms of mobilization, and we're figuring out how to reward staff uh, who focus on providing advice instead of uh, a specific loan, who build markets, and uh, who create the environment for investment. We know we can do it. Uh, Many uh, uh, companies have been able to do this. Even IFC, uh, the, the private sector wing, has been able to do it. And the other thing, we have to work better across the group. We have all these groups inside, uh, we have all these uh, entities inside the World Bank group. Uh, we have to now change the way we ask questions. Uh, is, the, is the financial structure of a project viable for, for commercial funding? And if not, what would it take to get, it, get us there? So it means that our public sector staff have to think more like private investors, and our private sector staff have to think more like public policy reformers. So a staff from all our institutions can walk in the shoes of others. We can take this huge step forward uh, in multiplying development finance. We also, it's an identity question, we also have to change how we see ourselves. Right now, we see ourselves as a lender. We see ourselves as an investor. We see ourselves as tackling small parts of the development agenda, directly financing projects and working towards specific policy goals. This is all great. This is fine. But we have to change. We have to think of ourselves now as strategic advisors, honest brokers who link capital looking for a greater return to countries looking to achieve their highest aspirations. And one of our most important roles, of course, is to attach knowledge to capital. Um, Not just knowledge about how to build a bridge or, or generate energy or sanitize water. Frankly, you can get that on the Internet. What we have to do is we need to attach knowledge about how to do this in specific developing countries. It's a very special set of skills. This has been the most wonderful uh, part of being president of the World Bank, is that you have these very special people uh, who not only have studied at the LSEs of the world, but have spent decades trying to actually solve problems in developing countries. Now, uh, uh, it, it, you know, for the most part, often we, we attach our knowledge to our own capital, but we have to go beyond that. We have to leverage our knowledge by linking it to the vast amounts of capital that come in from the private sector. These investors are not going to know how to make an infrastructure project work in a a developing country. That's what we do. That's what the other regional development banks do. That's what DFID does. Um, So we believe that everyone in the development community has to move in this direction, uh, has to be focused on finding these win-win opportunities. There's never been a better time uh, to find him. Trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines, earning little interest, uh, uh, many trillions of dollars, actually earning negative interest. You know, uh, uh, people are paying banks uh, to hold their money for them at the same value. Uh, we should be looking for opportunities uh, to meet the exploding aspirations of people all over the world. And this is a fundamental shift in our, con- uh, in our conception of who we are. In many instances, and this is just the truth, Uh, development finance institutions have competed with each other to finance projects, especially the low-hanging fruit projects that the private sector, with a little help, uh, could finance on commercial terms. For too long, our first thought was, how can we get the loan or grant out the door? That's often not what's best for poor people, poor countries, and it's definitely not what's best for the world. We need to have a different and difficult conversation about how we approach development finance. It's an urgent task, and the clock is ticking on the global goals. Look, with climate change, we're truly running out of time, and we need to rethink how to bring private and public sectors together to move immediately on both climate change mitigation and adaptation. We have to tackle climate change in a completely different and much more coordinated way so we have the largest possible impact right now. We need to stimulate the market to generate more investments in things like renewable energy. And right now, with just project finance, we're not getting there. This is a test for us. Can we take advantage of these huge potential win-wins? Can we stop competing with each other uh, for project finance and instead take an evidence-based approach to finance that maximizes outcomes for the poorest people, that maximizes outcomes for the planet, that redefines development, in a fundamental way. Well, I would say, we have no choice. We have to change. Now let me leave you with one story from one of my recent trips. A week ago, actually a few weeks ago, uh, I visited a school in Tanzania. I asked the 11-year-old students, and I always ask this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Two children stood right up and said, I want to be president of the World Bank, right? <laughs> so, so here's what I told them, and back to the Korea story. I told them, you know, I was born in 1959 in a country that was one of the poorest countries in the world. In 1960, the World Bank uh, said that without foreign aid, Korea would find it difficult to provide, and I quote, the bare necessities of life, unquote. You know, Korea didn't get a loan until 1963. Now let's go to 1963. I was still living in Korea, four years old. So in 1963, when I was in preschool in Korea, if George David Woods, the president of the World Bank at the time, had visited my classroom, I doubt that he would have imagined that one of his successors was sitting in that room in this country that they wouldn't even give a loan to. So I told those girls and boys in Tanzania, don't let anyone tell you that you can't be president of the World Bank or any other institution. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't be anything. You can. I believe that. But it won't happen unless we all decide that we're not going to allow these aspirations that are growing every day to be thwarted by our inaction. And and perhaps my most important message today, we can't let these aspirations be thwarted by inaction and we definitely can't let the aspirations be thwarted by bureaucratic inertia, which is what which is the reason we compete with each other. We need to embrace the notion that our greatest moral responsibility is to create equality of opportunity so that everyone has a chance to achieve their highest aspirations. So here today, At the London School of Economics, I want to issue a challenge to ourselves, uh, the World Bank Group, to the entire development community, and to all future economic and political leaders. Many of you I know are sitting in this room uh, today. We need to now act with the speed and scale that these times require and fundamentally change the way we do development. Aspirations are rising all around us. Let's see if finally we can raise our own aspiration to meet the aspirations of the poor. Thank you very much.
2: Well, Dr. Dr. Kim, (laughs) I'm saying Dr. Doctor because you're not only a medical doctor, but you also have a PhD, so... uh, I'm uh, remembering that. And and belated congratulations on your um, reappointment for your second term. So quite a speech there and quite a lot in in it. So thank you very much indeed, Dr. Kim, for that um, very, very comprehensive overview. And um, you said some very interesting things in it. We will take some questions, but just very quickly to pick up on some of the things that you said. You used the word aspiration so many times... And um, you cited the example um, of the people you spoke to in Tanzania. I'm always struck by the fact that when you look at these happy indexes, that I think UNDP does it, and you will see that people in Africa are always at the bottom of the happy index and people in the developed world are at the top. But if you look at the trend, you see that the Africans are actually at the top. So there's a lot of aspiration, a lot of optimism on the continent of Africa. But the question to you is, how do you at the World Bank try to address the aspirations now and in the future? Because not only have you got to try to ensure that, you know, you lift people out of poverty now, you've also got to try to make sure that you are addressing the needs of the economies of Africa in the future, where we know that, you know, with the fourth industrial revolution, more automated jobs and so on, that we're going to need computer scientists and all the rest of it. And then you look at the figures that only 2% of Africans study ICT, for instance. So you have a dual <coughs> challenge there, the now and the future.
3: It's a huge issue. And, and uh, I, I said it briefly in the speech, but uh, we, we think that uh, the... the uh, the demand for better, more effective investments in people. It's just—it's getting more serious every time. Let me just give you an issue I talk about a lot. I think it's one of the great human rights issues of the day. It's childhood stunting. So just to be, you know, childhood stunting is when a child under the age of five is two standard deviations below height for age. So of all the children in the world, including the high-income countries, it's 25% of all children are two standard deviations below height for age. And what we know is that those children literally have fewer neuronal connections. So a combination of, uh, of uh, poor nutrition, uh, lack of stimulation, and toxic environments means that these children literally are locked into their brains. They have fewer neuronal connections. They're not going to learn as well. They're not going to earn as much. And I was shocked at first when I came- took this job to learn how high the percentage is in some countries you wouldn't expect. India, 38%. Indonesia, 37%. uh, Pakistan, 45%. And so when I met with their heads of state, I said, you know, this is like an emergency for you guys. Mm. You are not going to be able to compete in the future if 40% of your workforce cannot compete in the digital economy. You know, uh, the estimation is that over 60% of jobs in the developing world will be wiped out by automation. So if you're losing all of your low-skilled jobs and then you're, you're not investing enough in your children and, and, and women specifically so that you don't have these high rates of childhood stunting, you're not going to be able to compete. So we have to find ways of addressing it and addressing it quickly. And we're hoping that in Rwanda, where um, uh, President Kagame just is obsessed with this, uh, uh, this problem, that we can show that you can actually reduce those rates very quickly. And if that's the case, what I'd love to see is that uh, things like childhood stunting, investment in education, investment in women, become included, you know, eventually in, in, in investment decisions. Wouldn't it be great if uh, investors started saying, huh, childhood stunting, 40%, maybe it's not such a good idea for me to invest in that country because you're not going to have the workforce I need. Mm-hmm. Huh, very poor participation of women in the workforce. You're not going to have the kind of dynamic workforce that I need, so maybe I won't invest. And and I I don't know if we can get there, but right now our teams are working on a human capital index that puts this that 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 really puts the numbers together so that we can bring to even you know potentially borrowing costs bond spreads. If we can bring you know the human capital quality of human capital investment to overnight borrowing rates, and that's that's in the future, Mm -hmm. uh, then I think people would finally understand. Oh, I see. Investing in children, investing in women, investing in my people is not something I can put off to later. It's something I have to do now. Uh, That's what we're hoping because there's, you know, right now it's just campaigns. We're not there, there's not really a hard edge to the investing in people um, uh, movement yet. We have to find a way to do right, that. Right,
2: sure. And then just very quickly, before I go to the floor, because we don't have a great deal of time, is... Sorry, I yeah, I oh, that's fine. It was all very riveting. Um, you talk very much about the new development, uh, new ways of, of development finance. And, and, you, and you gave us the triangle, the public-private partnership. We understand how you know, multilateral donors and also bilateral donors can put in money to leverage money from the private sector. But, you know, the private sector, it isn't a lack of money, is it, that's preventing investment in many cases. If you look, for instance, you know, at countries in Africa, there's a lot of money, but they just say, we simply cannot find the projects that we can invest in comfortably. So what can you... at And they cite problems like inconsistencies in government policies, a lack of a proper regulatory framework. So what can you do as a government to ensure that the public part, or at least the, the government side, is providing the right kind
3: of stability that the private sector needs? Because you know capital is a coward, isn't it? Ex- exa- so, And that's exactly, that's exactly what we're talking about. So, for example, we have a group uh, that works specifically on these things. They, they provide, you know, for example, what we'll do is we'll provide budget support to a country but say that if you want the next tranche of budget support, you've got to enact these reforms.
2: And And are they listening, though? Well,
3: these are are goals that are are put together with countries. You know, we say to the countries, look, this is our analysis. These are the the policy reforms that you're going to have to make. These are the improvements in the business environment. And these are things like, you know, how long does it take you to uh, get electricity? How long does it... Uh, take you to you know you know file uh, uh, your your institution your or your new company with the government. It's just very basic things, and so uh, what what the leaders tell us is that when we make an agreement and say that you're not going to get the next transfer money unless you make these changes, it actually helps them. Right? Mm. And uh, we've we've now the, there's a there's a new program called Program for Results. Where uh, the, Specifically, we do that. You get more education money once you've achieved these uh, uh, milestones. And the, the, cu- the, the countries at first were saying, well, maybe that's too difficult. But now they found that it really works, that they can actually hold their own employees accountable. So there's a whole bunch of us that are going to focus on improving the public sector part. But then what we also have to do is have a whole bunch of us who are out there looking for projects sure. that we could then you know, turn into things that need to be done, things that are difficult to do. But if we do enough work in project preparation, we can make them commercially viable. We don't do that right now unless you're going to take it to the board for a loan because we don't give credit for that. Mm. And it, it, seems so, it seems pretty straightforward. But I tell you, one thing I've learned at the World Bank Group is when you have like – Three thousand PhDs or something like that. Most of them economists. They don't like it when you change the incentives, right? and I, I learned that the hard way. Uh, but but on this one, on this one, I think everyone is in agreement that we do have to move in that direction. This is the right thing. Uh, and the
2: private do. sector, with its need for you know quick returns, sometimes a very different kind of time span from the, the public
3: sector. You, but so the th- yeah, but so the, the thing that we're learning is that there's all different kinds of private sector. I right. mean, so there are the equity investors who are looking for 20% return. Right. But there are others, you know, who literally have their money in negative interest rate bonds, right? In other words, if you just tell me I, I have $10 million tomorrow, I'll pay you to do that, right? Now, uh, for those folks, the, the, uh, the, their risk appetite is very low, But we have to create different tranches, different kinds of instruments to meet these different uh, risk appetites. And um, uh, it's just that we haven't done this as a whole group uh, in a a dedicated, specific way. And then once you start trying to get the private sector prepared, some other bank or somebody comes in and provides a loan for it with no conditions or a grant for it with no conditions, and it gets people frustrated. So... What we're talking about is potentially coming to an agreement sure. all together about doing something that we think is critical, best thing for the world, but hard because, you know, people kind of have to work outside their own personal interest.
2: Mm. But the interesting thing is you say it's the role of the private sector to create jobs, really, is the, what you're saying. The private sector yeah. creates yeah. 95% of sure. all jobs
3: in developing countries, yeah. and, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just a fact.
2: It's going to be very complicated. Good luck. You're going to need all those PhDs, (laughs) I think, at the World Bank to uh, crack all this and try and satisfy all the partners and so on. Let's take some questions from the floor, please. I'll take two or three at a time. Let's go at the top.
3: Make sure we get Mark here. uh, I will make sure we get Mark. The big man in development. I will will come to
2: you, Mark. Don't worry. But I'll just go to the students first since we're at the LSE. Have you got microphones? Ushers, can you give microphones to this lady there next to you and just this gentleman here? Okay. Stand, please. Speak into the microphone. Keep it short. And uh, I assume you're all students, so you don't have to say what you do. Yeah, okay. I think they're all LSE students. We have somebody right there. Go ahead. Stand, stand, yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, Thank you very much for your talk. Um, So I I wanted to preface my question by saying that, uh, in my opinion, the president of the World Bank is largely a role of being a diplomat on behalf of the world's poorest and most vulnerable. Um, And simultaneously, we seem to see political populism threatening to change the agenda uh, of many of historically the world's biggest players in development. Um, So do you you think that it's necessary to change the argument now as the president of the World Bank towards focusing more on the security incentives uh, of pursuing the development agenda and insofar as you think this is necessary, how effective do you think that will be?
2: Right, I think we've got that. Yes, Uh, second question.
1: Hello, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to ask my question. Uh, My name is Valerie Muller, I'm with the International Growth Centre at the LSE here. And uh, this is a question that I've been meaning to ask you for a very long time, so um, I'm very excited, thank you very much. My question is that um, um, one commonly heard criticism of the World Bank Group is that it um, it still follows very much of a one-size-fits-all approach and it's very um, Washington-driven. And I'd like to ask um, what your response to that criticism would be. Thank okay, you. Okay,
2: let's pick that one up first then, Dr. Kim. One-size-fits-all, not always possible, and then the one about the how do you change the narrative.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, so uh, I, I was part of those critiques, you know, uh, and, and there were, this is why I specifically brought up the cases where when it was just privatization as a concept, it didn't work. Right? And, and one of the great things about the World Bank is that whenever you have an issue, we actually study it. We do, we, we, we do studies on it. We collect data on it. We have people who really look at the question. And one of the greatest things about the World Bank group is it's changed completely uh, o- uh, over the last 20 years. So, you know, um, the reason I protested against the World Bank, I, in fact, I edited a book called Dying for Growth, uh, Global Inequality and the Health of the Poor, there was a 500-page uh, book criticizing the World Bank group, right? And uh, it, was, it was really interesting because when I went to interview with President Obama, um, uh, you know, when he was thinking about nominating me, the vetting people had found that book. I mean, it was an obscure publisher, so I thought maybe they won't find the book. Uh, but they found it, and they'd read, read every page of it, right? It was just, and I said, oh, my God, so, so am I out of the running, right? And they said, no, no, uh, we, we thought it was really interesting. You know, we, we read the whole thing. I mean, I, you know, again, this is why you know, President Obama was unique in so many ways. I think he, he let me do it. But the, the critique was that um, there was just not the same emphasis on investing in people, on investing in health and education. It was like um, you know, when, when governments were told to slash their budgets, health and education were part of the slashing. Right? And then uh, what we found is that there's just now overwhelming evidence that investing in health, education, social protection, conditional cash transfer programs, right? Now that we have the evidence that that they're so important, not only for just the health and education of people, but for economic growth, we've changed, and now we support that. You know, conditional cash transfer programs uh, where you give money directly to poor people. Right? When I got there, I couldn't believe how many studies we'd done on conditional cash transfer programs. And I said, why have we done so many studies? And they said, because people were ideologically opposed to them. They didn't think that you should give money and cash directly to poor people. That's why we had to do so many studies. But now that the, now that the studies are done, we're one of the largest uh, supporters of conditional cash transfer programs. The whole point being that um, uh, uh, we've moved away from one-size-fits-all and we're really, really focused on evidence, and so things change. This is not a one-size-fits-all program. I was very specific about this. Every single one of, uh, uh, of these efforts... to to crowd in the private sector, are going to depend on the priorities of the countries. They're going to depend on the priorities of the people. It, it, it can't work that way. And, and in many ways, that's the strength, that we have people on the ground in every country. Now, in terms of uh, uh, populism, look, you know, um, you said that the, the, that the role of the World Bank president is uh, as, a, as a diplomat, right? Um, so let me put it this way. One of the great strengths of the World Bank group is that... that uh, 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 because of the Articles of Agreement, we are forbidden from getting involved in politics. We can't, we can't get involved. We are forbidden from getting involved in the domestic politics of any country. And the reason they did that was that they didn't want development finance to be dictated by whoever was, you know, more powerful at any given moment. That, that you know, as long as we upheld standards, environmental and social, uh, 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 you know, standards, you, you know, our anti-corruption stuff, we should be able to to work with uh, just about any country, right? Now, um, uh, yes, you know, populism is on the rise, and, and there is a questioning of globalization, but that's precisely what I'm trying to, to address, and I, 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 I'm trying to make the point uh, that capital is a coward, but also capital is in some ways apolitical, right? So if we can create deals, and they're saying, hey... You know, I'm I'm paying negative interest rates. You know, to some you know to, you know to some country, for example, or some central bank, and I could in fact get three, four, or five percent over a 10-year period. And look, the bank and other agencies have taken a huge chunk of the risk out for me. Why would I not do that? So I think the point is that that um, uh, uh, we we'd love to convince every country in the world to do 0.7 percent, right? but it just doesn't look that good right now that we're going to be successful. And so, uh, 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 you know, sitting around waiting for people to be generous is not going to work. So we've got to get folks who would never think about investing in Africa, for example, but if we structured the deal in a, in, in a correct way, they would. That's why I'm going around, like, to meetings all over the world uh, trying to convince people that this is the right thing to do. Sure, but just on that question of capital, it's not
2: just foreign capital you're talking about because often you find that domestic capital doesn't invest in their own um, yeah. you know, projects and so on. So it's important to engage those. I mean, oh,
3: I, I, think that, I think that domestic capital will get in even more quickly. I mean, domestic capital sure. is asking us to do the same thing. Sure. Help us de-risk these investments. And so, you know, we're we're well. Well, foreign capital
2: well. often says, we're not going to go in if the domestic guys aren't. Exactly. You know, so so uh, you have to, you have to yeah, start You've got there, to get so. them in first. Okay, Um Mark, yeah.
1: Uh, Thank you for a a riveting and compelling presentation. Um, um, A lot of people will be a little bit outfaced by the scale of the challenge you've set out. So I've got a leading question for you. Sure. Um, When you were that little four year old boy in Korea in 1963, the characteristic of the world was that the the majority of people in the world lived a life which was dominated by being hungry all the time and seeing infants die before they entered their childhood, and women dying in childbirth very consistently and having a low, low probability of going to school. And we've seen a transformation, a bigger transformation in the last 50 years Absolutely. than in the whole of the previous 150,000 years of the human experience. And, and, and my point is that the pundits 50 years ago were not forecasting that. People like Paul Ehrlich were writing his book, The Population Bomb, where he was saying the world is on on the cusp of collapsing into um, famine and destitution, and uh, there's a quote in it. He said that he would take even money on a bet that by the year 2000, England would no longer exist because it would have been consumed by famine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, given that transformation, what can you say to us about your level of confidence that this new challenge that lots of people would find out find out facing? and it's a different one, about aspiration, it's a different challenge, is surmountable.
2: Okay, uh, we're going to just take some floor. Keep um, going. Mr. President, yeah, we've got such little time. You've got to really make your interventions extremely short, okay? So, just very, very short. They can also be comments. We're not going to have time to answer all these questions. Okay. Okay. So, just very quickly, please.
1: Hi. Uh, I'm a student here, a master's student in the Social Policy Department. Uh, And my question is that, the work that the World Bank does in low income and middle income countries uh, largely stems from the support, stability, and knowledge that is offered from high income nations. Um, but going back to your point of aspirations, I would argue that these states themselves, these high income countries, are re evaluating their aspirations and their opportunities for their own people now. Absolutely. So, how do you see this affecting the future of development finance? A great question. All yeah. right, okay. Um yeah,
2: who's got the microphone at the top? Somebody had a microphone. Usher's, can you just give your microphones to somebody? Yeah. Give them to just somebody. Just give them to somebody, unless you would like to ask a question, Usher. <laughs> Usher, see right it. please just. Green turtleneck. Term- yeah. 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 yeah, quick as you
1: can. Thank you. Briefly. Uh, Valentina Yemi, PhD candidate, Tadi Alisi. My question is about mental health. Uh, so there was a meeting last year on mental health, and. Link it to your presentation. Link it to your presentation. How would you attract private investor to invest in mental health? Okay, great question. Thank you.
2: Priority. Thank you very much. Who's got the microphone here? Jamie. Did, Jamie yeah, Drummond. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jamie, this, right this there. This chap's
3: got yeah, it. This okay, chap's okay, got it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Doctor yeah. Kim, thank you for the talk again. Um, you had made a reference about the Doing Business Index of the World Bank. Um, so I'm from India, and India ranks abysmally low in that index. Uh, and it, it's a government policy to now jump to the rank 50 uh, within the next uh, four or five years. Um, but
1: the problem with the index is that uh, it's very easy to game. It only measures one or two cities. And um, how, how do you plan to okay. change this? Yeah.
3: Thank
2: you. Okay, we'll take that one then, and we'll take the others then. So that one, how do you change the...
3: Okay, can I oh, th- you answer, got it? Yeah, go, please, yeah. go ahead. Zainab's yeah. tough. Okay, yeah. so, so, you know, India is tough, right? And, and I have to tell you, the, the, you know, Prime Minister Modi has really been committed to this. And, and, in fact, in India, it's very hard to game the system in India because India has 1.3 billion people. And even, you know, we now do two cities in India. Uh, but gaming the system is just hard. And so the Indians are frustrated because, you know, you have small countries with a couple million people who go up 100 uh, uh, you know, spaces in the ranking, because they can actually change everything in a, in a small country, and India feels that it's unfair uh, that we're comparing, you know, uh, a, a country of 1.3 billion people uh, to countries that are smaller than cities in, in, in India. So there are, there are uh, problems of scale, uh, but the, what we keep saying is every year we change it to try to make it better. They're doing business report, and the reason – uh, there lots of people uh, uh, call me, I mean, every year after doing business work comes out, I get phone calls. People are angry at where they are in the ranking. And we say, sorry, we're trying to make it better. Tell us what your critiques are. But it's the only thing that exists that does this. So we'll continue with it, and we'll try to make it better. Prime Minister, Modi tells me every time I see him that he's unhappy with uh, the, the ranking for the year. But that's great, because he's changed his attitude toward it. Instead of just critiquing it, um, as previous regimes did, he's not trying to get better. Okay, then you have mental, the mental health. health yeah. Mental health. You know, um, it, the, 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 the question for us is to what extent can the private sector have a role in education, health, water, traditionally publicly supported services? Now, if you look at India, right, India, so much of healthcare is provided by private practitioners that we've got to get them involved somehow. Now, what that will look like, we're not sure. The point for us, though, is that if we put much more uh, financing from private sector into things that normally the government would pay for, then it will leave money to invest in things like mental health. Now, you know, if you, since you asked me, you know that, that mental health is the source of the, huge, you know, the largest loss of Dallas, you know, disability, just life years of anything. And it's, it's, it's not something we're focused on. Arthur Kleiman, a psychiatrist, was my, my mentor in, in, uh, uh, at Harvard when I studied there. But, you know, uh, we have to do it. But, again, I think there's got to be a, some kind of other prod to make them invest in things like mental health. And it could be things like, Look, you know, your bonds pres and your foreign direct investment, you're having problems with this because you're not focusing enough on your people. I think that if we can figure out a way uh, to bring the real cost of ignoring human beings into things that are everyday like my my borrowing costs or the amount of foreign direct investment, then we're gonna see the kind of movement to do the right thing by people that we we, we know should be done. Right. Now, like uh, so then you have the question high income about countries. aspirations. Yeah. Well, High-income countries and low-income countries. Very interesting. You know, we just um, finished um, working very closely with the Canadians because they want to create an infrastructure fund in Canada. They're, they're in- investing a lot more in infrastructure. And what they found was that because we do this every day in countries all over the world, Canada's an interesting system. The provinces are pretty um, uh, uh, independent, but they want to create a federal level, a national level instrument to support uh, infrastructure investment. And we've actually done that all the time. So now what we're seeing is it's not, it's actually definitely not just knowledge from high-income countries going to low-income countries. You know, because low-income countries have to solve their problems in much more difficult circumstances, we're finding that a lot of times uh, it's the low-income countries that are making the real innovations. Rwanda, the first country in the world to use drones uh, to uh, deliver products for a social service. They, they use drones to deliver blood uh, to any part of Rwanda within like 20 minutes. It's amazing. I was there, I was at the drone launch place, I launched a drone. I think it's online somewhere, Serene, is that right? It's online yet? It's on, go on the World Bank website, you'll see me launching a drone like going crazy, right? Uh, so, so 40% of the drone deliveries of blood were for emergencies. So y- you might be able to say uh, that, that that's how many lives we were able to save. ZipLine, the company that built the drones, is making money. Uh, 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 Rwanda is saving money, right? So in this case... Uh, Rwanda has innovated on something that I think now can be used all over the world in even the highest income countries. Right. And, and Mark's then I question... I think
2: that's probably going to be the final question, really, that we can, if you answer Mark's well, question. Well, I
3: want to ask Mark back, because I, you we'll know... Give him
2: a right of <laughs> reply. Give him the, uh, so, the so microphone. So here's, here's but, yeah, what yeah.
3: I, he, m- m- Mark, here's what I think. Mm-hmm. You know, so Mark and I have actually been talking about exactly this question for months now, at least m- maybe, maybe year, year, years or more. And um, uh, I have to tell you, I'm really worried about this, uh, and I think part of the way we can judge ourselves is how quickly we move in the direction that, that we're pointing out. So, so Mark has been extremely – he's the guy in uh, Diffid, you know, who, uh, uh, who's worked there for years. You know, if, um, he, he's been encouraging us to move in this direction. And um, I, I think the hard part is going to be to get other regional development banks and other bilateral donors on board. I think that's going to be the hard part because everybody wants to maintain their own independence – I would say if we can do this, um, I have great faith in um, uh, human ingenuity uh, that we'll find a solution to, to this problem. I, 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 you know, The thing that worries me most, and you've heard me say it many times, I'm worried, about, I'm worried about childhood stunting. I'm, I'm worried about um, you know, children who are going to be able to tweet. They're going to be able to go on Facebook. They're going to be able to um, you, you know, do all kinds of things, but they're not going to be able to compete. That's that's a hugely dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Now I think that we can find ways, uh, like like we said in Rwanda, to drop uh, stenting levels really, really quickly. We have to, we have to be able to do it. Uh, but um, uh, you know, I gave that example of the drones in Rwanda because I don't think that it's only rich countries that can innovate. Right? Sure. I see I see tremendous sort of you know drive to be entrepreneurial in places like Rwanda. Now, um, you know, less so in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They're difficult countries. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, for from, from me, Mark, it's, a, it's, it's just, I, I think this is the, the, the moral challenge of our time. And, you know, one of the questions, are, are you changing your, uh, your, your um, uh, line to talk about security because of the current political environment? And he, here's what I'd say, right? Um, uh, I, I, I think that um, uh, the old world where it was rich people um, expressing their generosity to the poor by giving them little bits and pieces, right? It, it, it was okay. Uh, I mean, it wasn't okay, but I mean, it's kind of all you could do in, say, 1950, when 70% of the people in the world lived in extreme poverty. what well, Marx is exactly right, right? So up to 1820, with the start of the, 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 the uh, Industrial Revolution, everybody was poor except kings and queens, right? Everybody was tied to their land. And, you know, prosperity and growth only started in the 1820s. Before that, for all of human history, pretty much everyone was poor. And then uh, uh, the real change started in 1990. From 1820 to 1990, the, the share of global income of the G7 countries grew continuously, 1820 to 1990. Then only in 1990 did it drop. What happened in late 1980s and 1990? Deng Xiaoping said, uh, to get rich is glorious. He said, some of us will get rich first. He said market systems versus uh, uh, planned economies. I don't care if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. And by engaging the market system, they lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Right? So how did they do that? How did that work? You know, They changed the incentives. They were evidence-based about uh, embracing the market. Who would have seen that coming? I can tell you that the pundits didn't see it coming. You know what they said about... They, it was more than just they'll have trouble feeding themselves. What they said about Korea, they said, you know, Korea has no chance of developing. This was in the 1960s. I mean, I read all this stuff. No chance of developing. Why? Because Korea is too Confucian, right? They're Confucian fundamentalists. They don't have appropriate Western values. Remember capitalism and, the, what was it, the Max Weber book that, uh, and the spirit of capitalism, um, uh, Christianity, uh, well, I, I forgot what, what it was, Protestantism, and uh, yeah. right? Uh, uh, and they said, the country that's really going to develop in that region is the Philippines, because they have sufficient Western influence, right? 30 years later, you know what they said? Korea developed because of Confucianism, right? <laughs> right? So, so I think that we have been wrong about the aspirations of the poor for a very long time, right? Let me give you, Zainab and I were just talking about earlier, you know, in 2003, when I led a movement to get uh, HIV treatment in Africa, everybody... Every single person, uh, every single person in public health said, impossible, can't do it, it's impossible. And you know who the greatest uh, op- 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 opponents of HIV treatment in Africa were? The World Bank. Right? Not cost effective, not doable. You know, the, the head of USAID at the time said, you know, gee, you know, you'd like, you'd like to think that you could do this in Africa, but in Africa they don't have watches. They, they know morning, they know uh, midday, they know dark of night, but they don't have watches. How are you going to get them to take a pill five times a day if they don't even have watches, right? To which an African group that just hosted this gentleman said, well, I mean, he can say that, but the only person who was late for every meeting was that guy. <laughs> right? Now, I have to tell you, you go back and look. In 2003, every single one of the great leaders we're saying 20, there are 25 million people in Africa living with HIV. Every single one of them, leaders in public health said, impossible to treat HIV, right? So I think part of the problem is that, that, um, that we start believing uh, the, the naysayers who say something can't be done because these people are so poor, right? And that's what I'm asking you today, right? Don't believe them, right? Then There always will be naysayers. There will always be people who say, you know... Uh, uh, we used to say, in India, it'll take 273 years to get everyone telephone service. All right? And at the World Bank, we had a debate. Should we start putting up telephone poles? Right? Now, luckily, we were smart enough, and we didn't, but we almost did. Right? Um, and, and so what are the things we say now? We say, oh, well, you know, African development's impossible. There's too much corruption. There's too much this. There's too much that. And I have to say, every single time that I have put my faith in the poor, uh, that I've, that I've Try to see the world from the poor, and to raise my aspirations to meet theirs. Right? I've been surprised, and I've been inspired.
2: Absolutely. Thank you very much, indeed, Dr. Thank you. I'd like.
1: Thank you very
0: much. The reason that I have to reappear is because there are two people to thank. So uh, bear with me. This has been a real pleasure actually and actually a privilege to listen to this talk. It's extremely stimulating and if I was one of you up here, a lot younger than me, I was a student at LSE myself, I would certainly um, uh, be be thinking very seriously about how I use my own future. There are a lot of very interesting challenges here and you can all be a part of it, and I know some of you already are, particularly those in the Growth Centre. But uh, thank you very much, Dr. Kim, for giving up uh, some of your time. You know, we know you've got a very busy schedule, but this has been a real privilege, and, uh, and uh, we very much hope that one day you can come back and carry on. It's been a really exciting, very interesting talk. I'd also like to thank Zainab Badawi for uh, guiding the discussion, Uh, as incisively as one would expect from a a, a very renowned journalist. And it's a pity that we didn't have more time, because I think that discussion was starting to evolve, I would say, very nicely. There was a lot more uh, steam in it, if you like. Uh, For those of you that are very interested in this area and have been stimulated to think more and to engage in further discussions, you'll be pleased to know that uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the World Bank, Uh, Kristalina Georgieva will be here with us on the 5th of June and uh, there's an event which is hosted, would you believe it by the fabulous Financial Markets Group that uh, that I was the director of for 18 and a half years and it's good to see that they're actually getting involved in these sorts of issues uh, rather late in the day but uh, there's always a a beginning uh, to any uh, bold and ambitious endeavour so we hope that you'll be able to attend that. So I first of all would like you, the audience, by the way, I should thank you, the audience, because it's not just the pa- uh, Dr. Kim and Zena, but you've been a great audience, so thank you very much for coming. Uh, but in order to um, sort of make sure the event uh, ends very happily, if you could be- please be patient, remain seated, whilst Dr. Kim and Zena leave the platform. And uh, that I'd just like, before we do that, just a final vote of thanks to both Dr. Kim and Zena for an extremely interesting reason.